you have your Bibles today, you can open up with us to Luke chapter 14 if you like to follow along. In the verses that we read a little bit earlier together, Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Jesus had been at the home of a Pharisee. They had worshipped together in the synagogue. They had gone to this Pharisee's house for a great feast, a great supper. And the previous several weeks, we've kind of worked our way through what happened in the midst of that feast. And now Jesus is leaving the home of the Pharisee. And when he does, he goes outside and there is a great crowd of people waiting to follow him. By this point in time, folks had heard a little bit about Jesus. They knew that he was somebody who healed people. Many people were looking to him as a potential Messiah figure. That is, someone who would rescue them from Roman rule, uh, be their political hero, uh, to be their financial and economic hero as well as they left uh, the Roman rule behind them. Folks were looking for Jesus to make them happy, healthy, wealthy, and free. That's what they were looking for. In effect, what they were looking for is what many are proposing that Jesus does today. They were looking for a prosperity gospel. Uh, they believed that Jesus following him would make them healthy, wealthy, and wise eternally in all times from this moment on. All they had to do was come to Jesus and they'd never have a problem again. He would handle everything. Jesus would give them a bed of roses. And this is a false gospel. It's a false gospel today. It was a false gospel then. Really, it's no gospel at all. It's just a fairy tale. It's a creation of men. It cost the follower nothing, those who would follow this false gospel. It turns God into a cosmic Santa Claus, and that's what they were making Jesus out to be. A cosmic Santa Claus always ready to come at our beck and call, always ready to do our bidding. Now, in that scenario and in that relationship, who is God and who is the one serving? Do you see how clever Satan is? Turns everything upside down and on its head. That's what these folks were doing. They were seeking after Jesus to make him a cosmic Santa Claus. Jesus never in any way insinuated that this is the truth or this is the way things are to be. And when he walked out and he saw this great crowd of people looking at him for these things, he responds to their desire and responds to their expectations with one of the most poignant, profound statements in all of his ministry. In fact, it's one of the most difficult things in the world to preach because it has such a deep application to our life. There is nothing more transcendent. I would challenge any biblical scholar with this. Practically speaking, there is nothing more transcendent than what we see in this passage of Scripture today in the whole of the Scriptures. It is deep. It is life-changing. If you can grasp it just a little bit, it will change the whole of your being. Because the entirety of the gospel is wrapped up in this challenge, in this message that God gives 
to a group of people who are looking for a cosmic Santa Claus, looking for cheap religion and cheap grace, and looking to find heaven on their own terms. This passage of Scripture, Jesus responds to all of that, and He says, if you come to me just simply to make your life better, if you're coming to me to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise, and nothing else, if you think it costs you nothing to follow me, you have another thing coming. Because if you follow me, it will cost you everything. If you come to me, you will have to die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, when Christ calls a man to himself, he bids him to come and die. That's what Jesus is saying in this passage of scripture. If you want to come be my follower, you have to come and die. It's an amazing passage of scripture. And listen, this morning, I'm not going to be all foo-foo. I'm not going to give you clever stories, and I'm not going to make you laugh a lot because I'm going to make you think maybe deeper than you've ever thought before. And I pray that you won't be confused, that there'll be no confusion in that as we tackle this very deep subject. But we need to understand something. Christianity, the true Christianity as preached by Jesus Christ himself when he was walking the earth, means that we cease to exist as we entered this world, and we become a new creation, something completely and totally different. Jesus says here, he uses a couple of illustrations to help us understand this point, and we're going to start right there. This first one he uses seems a little bit strange to us and almost seems to contradict Scripture, but we know it doesn't. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. Now, is he really teaching us to hate our family? Absolutely not. We know that in other places, Jesus speaks about honoring our father and mother. We know that throughout the Old Testament and through the New Testament that we're taught to love our family, to honor our family, to sacrificially serve one another, including our family. Jesus is simply stating a fact here. If you follow him, your devotion to him must be such that all other good things in life, even those things we consider the best things in life, those things that we love the most, will never compete with Him for our affections. He tackles that, this whole thing of dying to self with that illustration. Your affection for me, your love for me is to be such that all other affection in life, all other things you love, even the people you love, even the things you're supposed to love in life, it's going to look like hate compared to how much you love me. Your devotion must be such. Christianity is crazy, isn't it? Real Christianity is. It seems crazy to the natural man. It seems absurd to us. If someone is going to genuinely preach you the gospel, it is going to seem completely absurd to your natural man. It should anyway. Jesus says there are not to be any affections in your life, no relationships in your life that would even come close to comparison with your relationship with me. second illustration he uses here is about a tower. And we're just going to work through these three real quick and come back to the main meat of what I believe Jesus is saying here about the cross in verse 27. But he uses this illustration of a tower. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build a tower and was not able to finish. Jesus is using this illustration to tell people to seriously consider the cost of what they're doing when they contemplate and think about following him. He said, we, we ask people to come and say, 
Jesus is going to make you. He's going to give you love and peace and hope and eternal life in heaven. And you just need to come, 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 come on. You know what we ought to be doing is saying, listen, you're a sinner. You're sick. You're lost. You're headed to hell. You're broken. You're marred. You're not working as intended. You need a Savior from all of that. But you need to understand, if you're going to be saved from that, genuinely saved from that, it means dying to all of those things, dying to all that you are. Now, you need to really think about this. I had an evangelist say one time to me, he said, when women give birth to a child, it is not a momentary thing. A lot of you women wish it was, don't you? You go through a nine-month process here, don't you? I mean, nine months. It starts out, you're sick, aren't you? I mean, I've seen women get sick over things, I mean, different things, different for everybody. I had one girl in my church down in College Station, she could not stand the smell of meat during her first trimester. And if she smelled meat, that was it. Whatever was in her stomach was not going to stay there, right? And then you move on to the second trimester, and for many it's, it's, it's uh, the good times, but sometimes it's just you're exhausted. Uh, when, Karen, when, when Kim was pregnant, she, uh, sometimes I'd come home and say, what in the world? I mean, she'd just be on the couch just out, just exhausted. Pregnancy. It's wonderful. And then it's fine from then on out, right? No problems whatsoever. After that second trimester, you're home free, right? No, you have the third trimester. What happens in the third trimester? Your back hurts. Your feet hurt. Sometimes they swell. You're uncomfortable. You can't sleep. Can I get an amen over here from this section of... All right? Got a couple of you going through some of that right now over there. You know, you, you're just uncomfortable. You just can never be comfortable. And, and then all of a sudden, after that, after, uh, after the third trimester, it comes to the point of actually giving birth. Then it's a piece of cake, right? No, not so much. Some of you are saying, I don't know if I ever want to have children. No. It's good when it's all said and done because you have this little baby there, right? And then you forget about all that it took to get there. But it's a process, isn't it? And what this evangelist told me was, he says, we have the illustration of what it means to be born in this nine-month process. He said, it's a process. There's a price to be paid, and the mother pays it, and then there's birth. And we think that spiritual birth is going to happen instantaneously with no cost. It's going to cost you everything. I hear people say today, said people, young people are looking for a cause to die for, to live and to die for. They're willing to pay it. They're just looking for it. And the church isn't offering it to them because we've made it all sugar-coated. Something that costs you nothing. You know you need to think about it before you come to know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus Christ, your Savior today, let me tell you something. It's going to cost you everything. You're going to die to who you are. You're never going to be the same. Jesus doesn't want just pieces and parts of you. He wants the whole of you. And without giving him the whole of you, you have none of him and no new life in him. And you are not saved from your sin. Jesus says here, you need to count the cost. But not only the cost in the moment, the cost long term. He uses this illustration about the king looking down the road. He says, what king is about to go to war against another king will not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000. If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. It's going to cost you everything in the short term. It's going to cost you everything in the long term. You will never be the same. Isn't that something? 
This is just crazy stuff. I mean, isn't it enough that we just add Jesus to our life? I mean, we like our life pretty good the way it is. How about we just have Jesus come along so we can change our dress in eternity? From hotel hell to, to the, the paradise inn. How about that? Wouldn't that be enough? Left to our own doing on our own terms, we might do that, right? Say, well, we'll change some things about ourselves. There's a lot of people doing that. There are a lot of people who are sitting in prosperity gospel churches doing that, but there are a lot of people who are sitting in churches that don't preach a prosperity gospel, who preach the gospel, who have just simply chosen to do that, to meet God on their own terms. And in doing so, they have not met God. So he gives us verse 27 here. He uses these three illustrations, and then he brings us to, really, verse 27 kicks off the illustrations. Verse 33 is kind of the bookend, sums it all up, brings it all together. And in this verse 27, he says to us here, he says, anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, there are a lot of people out there who believe that this is talking about our burden to bear as Christians, that we're going to make tough decisions and we're taking the hard road in life and there's just going to be some tough times as a result of that and we just need to grin and bear it. That is not what Jesus is saying. Everyone in that crowd of people understood what a cross was. A man carrying a cross was going out to die. He was never going to come back. It was going to be the end of him, the end of who he was. Anyone carrying a cross, he was a condemned man. He was going out never to return. It was a Roman instrument of execution. It brought terror to a people who were conquered by Rome. It was so bad that Roman citizens, one of the rights of being a Roman citizen was that you would never face crucifixion. It was that bad. And so everyone understood what Jesus meant when he said, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus was taking his cross out to Golgotha and he was to die. And Jesus is saying, get on in the line, boys. Take up your cross, ladies. It's time to go out and die. That's what Jesus is teaching here. He's saying, if you're going to be my disciple, you need to take up your cross, you need to come on after me, and you need to die. That is, you need to cease to exist as you are. And who are we when we come into this world? (coughs) I want you to think about this. (coughs) Listen, we enter this world sinners. Psalm 51 says that we are conceived in sin. And that doesn't mean that we are conceived in some sinful act. It means that even at conception, we are sinners. We are tainted with sin. We are born with a sin nature. We are marred. We are broken. We have a propensity for sin. We are inclined to rebellion against God because of the nature that we are born with. We are selfish. We are self-sufficient, self-absorbed. We are, from that moment of conception, all of these things. And that very fact comes to light the first moments we're able to really communicate our desires to the rest of the world, isn't it? I mean, a child is about himself, herself. And that sin nature and that self-centeredness just blossoms as they grow. They have no capacity to understand different. We are born that way, each and every one of us. The, the, the real ugly of it is when we get older and we're capable of understanding that we should be different and we decide not to be different. We decide to continue to be selfish and self-centered and self-reliant. 
And what Jesus is saying here is that's who you are and that has to die. And when he says die, he's not talking about a change, a tweak, or just a a new leaf to turn over. He means you completely cease to exist as you are. When someone dies, they are done here. It is over. And he's saying literally you need to die to who you are. It needs to completely cease to exist. Now, what can you do for yourself when you die? Absolutely nothing. See, what we have to do is come to the end of self and our self-centeredness and selfishness and say, you know what? I can do nothing for myself to change who I am. I can do nothing for myself to save myself. I can do nothing for myself with regard to my sin problem or the sins that I've committed. And I have to just completely cease to exist. I have to go to Jesus and I have to say, I am done. I confess that I'm a sinner. I no longer want to be this sinner that I am. I no longer want to be the person that I am. So I I admit that I have a problem. I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I have a sin nature. I admit that I'm in rebellion against you. And Lord, I submit all those things to you. I push it all out there. I give you who I am. I give you my life. All that it is, I am dead to it. Now, Paul says to us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone away. The old is gone, and the new is come. Jesus talks about this experience in terms of a new birth in John chapter 3. He says, you cease to exist, and then God reaches down and does what he can do. Because you've died. You're dead. You just say, God, I'm dead. I die to all that I am, and I give it to you. I am a sinner. I confess and admit my sin to you and that I am a sinner. And I give my sinner self to you. I give it away to you. And then God does what he can do because now you're dead. You recognize your helplessness. You're at the end of self. And God reaches down and he recreates you. He makes you into a new creation. Listen, this this is significant here. Because this word creation means the act of creating something. It means to bring something into existence. What God is saying is is that when you die to yourself, God is going to recreate you and bring something to existence that did not exist before. You are a new existence. If you've really come to Christ and died to your old man, your old woman, And given your life to Jesus and fallen helplessly before him seeking his salvation, you need to understand something. He recreates you. You're raised from the dead. Now you go look at Romans 6 this afternoon and Paul gives a real good uh, little 14, 15 verses about this in that chapter about how we are buried with Christ in baptism. Just as Christ was, was buried, we too are raised to walk in a new life. God has raised you from the dead. Let me tell you something. If you're a Christian here today, you need to understand God has raised you from the dead. And if you never died, you need to make sure that you have literally died first so that you can be raised from the dead. If you're just saying, Jesus, just make my life better, that's not death to the old man. You've got to get serious and get real with God. You've got to count the cost. And you've got to come to that point in time where you say, I'm at the end of myself. I'm at the end of it. I can't save myself, can't make myself good, can't make myself better. 
I can't do anything for myself. Only God can do this for me. You've got to come to the end of yourself and genuinely die so you can be really, really, genuinely raised from the dead. Raised from the dead, folks. That's what you and I are as believers in Christ. We were raised from the dead. That's pretty exciting stuff when you start to contemplate what it all means. I am not who I was before. I am new. I am a new creation in him. Jesus said, you have to take up your cross. You have to die. Now, a couple things real quickly. How do I know whether or not I have genuinely died and been raised from the dead? Well, I can preach a lot of sermons about that. Jesus gives us a couple of verses at the end here that seem out of place and seem very strange in this conversation because he ends this with verse 34 and 35 talking about salt. He says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is neither fit for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let him understand what I say. And I would challenge you with this. If you want to know whether or not you are genuinely born again, if you have genuinely been raised to new life in Christ, you need to just simply ask yourself this question, are you salty? Is there a difference that Christ has made in you? Because if you're the same old person you were before, with little or no difference now after you have confessed Christ, you very likely never really genuinely died and have been resurrected to new life. One of the great problems in the church today is the the little difference in morality in action of people who confess Christ in here and those who refuse to confess Christ out there. And the reason that is is because so many of our churches today are filled with people who give lip service to Christ who've never genuinely died to themselves and been resurrected in Christ to new life. When you're resurrected, you're different. You're a different person. You can't be who you were before. Go read Romans 8. The person who is lost cannot be pleasing to God, cannot obey God. When you're saved and resurrected, you have a desire to obey God. You want to obey Him, and you are empowered to obey Him. And when you sin, that's the aberration. That, that's, the, that's the thing that's different from what's real about you and consistent about you. Christians might fall in, in a little bit of sin for a time, but it can't remain that way. They won't remain that way. You see, Christ has made me different. He has resurrected me. My life is not my own anymore. And let me tell you something, a little something about this. And this is when it starts to get even a step deeper and a step deeper and a step deeper here, okay? When you're resurrected to new life, you have a power at work within you that is incomprehensible. When I say that you now have the opportunity to obey, I mean you have the opportunity to obey that you never had before. And this is one thing that a lot of Christians miss out on, people who are genuinely saved. They get saved, they're a new creation, they have this power at work within them, and then after a little while, rather than continuing to stay dead, they try to pick up, again, their old way of doing things and think that they can confront sin in their willpower and they can confront sin with their own strength and own power. You're going to lose every time. Taking up your cross is a daily thing. Once we do it, ultimately we get saved, but don't... don't Act like that old person again. Depend on the new power at work within you to give you victory. I mean, we have to go to Christ and say, Christ, I can't, I can't obey. I, I can't do this in myself. You've resurrected me to new life. You have made me someone new. 
Your power is at work within me. So I'm asking you now, Lord, that you would change me, that you would mold me, that you would shape me in such a way to give me victory as I live in this sin-sick world. We have to depend on that power at work within us to do immeasurably more than we could ever hope for or imagine. And he will. Because we're his. We're resurrected. And we're new. A.W. Tozer said... People who are crucified with Christ have three distinctive marks. They're facing only one direction. They can never turn back. And they no longer have plans of their own. They no longer have plans of their own. Let me tell you something. And I want you to listen real careful with me on this one, okay? When you've died to self and died to your old man, your old woman, and you've been resurrected to new life, and you have a relationship with Christ, Jesus is your Lord. Jesus is your Lord. This whole thing about can Jesus be your Savior and not be your Lord, that's, 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 that's ridiculous. No one in Scripture ever would have thought that you could have Jesus as Savior but not also have Him as Lord. How in the world could someone die to the old person and be resurrected to new life without having Jesus as Lord? Does that mean that you're always going to be obedient at every point and live in sinless perfection I'm not preaching that this morning, okay? I know that we're not perfect people, okay? But what I'm saying is, is that we confess and recognize Jesus as Lord if we're saved. You see, I no longer make my own decisions. I have been bought with a price, the blood of Jesus Christ. He makes the decisions. I cannot determine what is right and wrong. I no longer do that. I have no rights to do that. People ask me, is it right to do this? Is it right to do this? Wrong to do this? Wrong to do that? What do you think about this? What do you think about that? Look, my opinion doesn't matter at all. Don't listen to anything that might be considered my opinion. Listen to what Scripture says. God's judgment on the matter. He's my Lord. He said, well, do you believe that marriage is between a man and a woman? Yes, I do. Why? Because Scripture teaches that. I don't get to make that decision. I don't, I don't get to come like some of these politicians and say, I've evolved on this, and now I believe that it's okay. Let me just tell you something. There's no evolution. No evolution of thought and morality with Jesus Christ. He just has made and determined what is right and what is wrong. He's told us that in His Holy Word. I don't get to make that decision. People say, well, it's all right to live together before you're married. I don't get to make that decision. Jesus already made that decision. He said there's going to be no adultery, there's going to be no fornication. End of statement. I don't get to make that decision. I don't get to make you feel better about your poor choices. This is just what it is. People say, well, is it okay to, to uh, you know, just tell a, a dirty joke every once in a while? Jesus said, Paul's taught us no coarse joking. I mean, I don't get to make these decisions. I, I don't get to do this. I, I mean, we can go on and on and on. We go about sexual sin is easy to identify, but there are a whole lot of them we have trouble with. say, well... Is it okay to every once in a while just have the big feast and eat that second bowl of chips and third enchilada? No, it's not. I don't get to make that decision. And you know what? I'd like to make that decision. That's one I'd like to make, right? I'd like to go ahead and give myself a pass for that every once in a while. I don't get to make that decision. See, Jesus is Lord. I have died to self. I have been resurrected to new life. I am filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm a new creation. I can depend on Him for the capacity and power to be obedient because I have taken up my cross, died to self, and been resurrected to new life. See, this doesn't end with our death. It, it ends with our resurrection. 
Jesus is just telling a group of people who are selfish and self-centered, if you want to come to me, you have to die. Knowing full well that they did not intend to do that. Most of them. But it's not the end of the story. Our death to self. See, the next step is resurrection to life. And our life belongs to him. Our life is his. Let me tell you something. This is one of the most profound, deep, powerful things, I think, in, in all of the ministry of Jesus. Now, there may be New Testament scholars that argue with me on that. I don't know. Charles would probably do. But here's the thing about it. I believe that in this passage of Scripture, what we see is the reality of what it means to know God and to have new life in Him. And let me just bring it all together, and we'll, we'll, we'll bring this to a close here today. Let me bring it all together for you like this. We're all born broken, and Jesus came to fix us. We were all born sinners. Every one of us have sinned and fallen short of God's planned perfection for the human race because of our sin in the garden. And the sin in the garden was this. I will be my own God. I will be self-centered, selfish, and self-determining. I will decide what is right, what is wrong in my own way and how I'm going to meet God on my own terms. That's the way we're all born to be. And Jesus said, if you want to follow after me and have a new life, you have to first cease to exist in that one and you have to choose to die. And the way you choose to die is just to confess Jesus is Lord. You have to just confess, I will no longer be my own God. I will no longer determine for myself what is right and wrong. I will no longer determine my course of action. I will no longer allow this to be about me. I am going to die to all that I am, all that I have been up to this moment. If you have not ever done that, you have not counted the cost of what it is to follow Jesus. You have not taken up your cross and genuinely followed him. Now, that may come as a real convicting thing for many people in this room, some of which have, may have been a member of this church for some time. I don't know. But let me encourage you with this, that if you have done that, and you have confessed that you have been sin-sick and self-centered and selfish and you have been about yourself and you have been your own God. And if you have confessed that sin and if you have genuinely said, I give my life to you, Jesus brings to a close the life that you've had and he has resurrected you. And listen, there are a lot of believers in this room that need to believe and understand what it is to have a resurrected kind of life. You are living now in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. You are a child of God. You are not a worm crawling around. This whole idea that I'm just a sinner saved by grace, let me tell you something. You were a sinner, you have been saved by grace, and you are made a saint. Paul did not address his epistles to the sin-sick worms in Philippi. He said to the saints, and let me tell you something, you are raised to walk in newness of life and don't believe the lies of the enemy or the old wives' tales and things that have been passed down that may keep you beaten down. You are a new creation. Let me tell you something. Satan and the powers of darkness tremble when the knees of the saints hit the ground. And the reason is, is not because of you, because you're something special. It's because you have been resurrected as a child of the king. And they know when the children of the king begin to make requests before the throne of the king. And when they storm the throne of the king by the grace given to them at the cross of Jesus Christ, things happen. They know that if we have the faith of a mustard seed, their mountains in our life come down. 
You see, there is a power at work within us that goes beyond our imagination, but we do not have the creativity in our minds and the imagination in our mind to begin to grab hold of the unthinkable. And that's what we cannot comprehend. We have lost our sense of the transcendent and what truly is awesome. God is awesome, and the power at work within you is awesome, and you are not to be trampled on. You see, what we need to do is we need to start believing that we've been resurrected. We have this idea that the resurrection comes someday. The resurrection's already happened on the day you came to know Christ as your Savior and Lord. That's just a bodily resurrection. That's just when your body, this old thing you're running around in right now that's breaking down day by day is going to be resurrected from the dust that it is into something spectacular. You've already been resurrected. And Satan doesn't want you to know that. He doesn't want you to understand the power of that. He doesn't want want you to understand that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He wants to keep your eyes transfixed on the world and this broken body that's decaying. And he wants you to think that everything's just getting worse and worse. And he just wants you to think that you're just taking up this burden of a cross and trying to survive. And the reality of it is you've already won. You're already victorious. You're already living above this and beyond this. Not because Christ is going to make you healthy and wealthy and happy every day of your life, but greater is he that is in you than is he that is in the world. And the power at work within you gives you a life beyond your circumstances. Jesus said in this life you're going to have troubles. You're going to have persecutions. You're going to have tribulations. But take heart. I've overcome the world. You see, we're overcomers in the face of whatever It is that comes our way. We're overcomers because we're the resurrected children of the King Most High. So this morning, have you taken up your cross? Have you died to all use? Let me tell you something. The trade-off is wonderful. Whatever you think it is that you are losing, you're losing nothing. Nothing at all. Have you died to who you are so that you might be resurrected. So that you might be resurrected for who he intends, desires, and plans for you to be. Eye is not seen and ear is not heard. Mind is not comprehended the plans that God has for you as a resurrected child of the king. So this morning, have you genuinely died? Have you genuinely died to self, to sin, to your own way of doing things, to the person you were born to be? Have you genuinely died, pushed it all in and said, Lord, here's the whole thing. Here's my life. All of it, pieces and parts, the whole is yours. I give it away. Lord, I die, and I ask you to resurrect me in new life. Have you done it? Have you done it? Have you done it? That's my first question. And my second question to you as Christians who have done that, do you believe you're resurrected? And are you walking as a resurrected child of the king? If not, it's time to start doing so. Start believing that there's something more than just a little bit of joy to get you through. There's a whole lot of power to make you an overcoming, make you an overcomer for a victorious kind of living that's genuine in him. Let's bow.